Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. From WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. This Sunday at the Roswell Cultural Arts Center, the Atlanta Braves' favorite opera singer performs in concert with the Atlanta Pops Orchestra. These shows in Roswell have been a way for us to bring our diverse repertoire to an audience that perhaps may not even know that we've been around. Later this hour, we'll hear from singer Timothy Miller with Atlanta Pops director and drummer Kevin Leahy. First, we take you from the U.S. Supreme Court to Atlanta with an extraordinary ending in New York. Imagine being a professional artist for all of five years, And then you receive a phone call from the Metropolitan Museum in New York asking to acquire your work. That dreamlike experience happened to Atlanta artist Julie Torres. She joins us now via Zoom. Julie, welcome to City Lights. Thank you so much, Lois. It's wonderful to speak with you. So what was your reaction when you received the news? (laughs) I think I did drop the phone, (laughs) just about, (laughs) literally. (laughs) That would be easy to understand. Yes. The Met acquired your screen print image of Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Would you describe the portrait? Yes. So it's a traditional screen print. It's a smaller piece of mine. It's about 16 inches by 20. The name of the piece is Super Diva. And for that piece, I chose to have a palette of uh, primarily pinks and purples. It features Justice Ginsburg. I believe it was one of her official judicial portraits for the Supreme Court. I changed it substantially with the colors and added some pattern. And then in the background, there are different quotes of hers, some from opinions, some from speeches that she gave. What determined the quotes you chose? At the time that I made Super Diva, I had been making work about Justice Ginsburg for, I guess, about a year And just during the course of doing that in my sketchbook, you know, I was constantly writing down things that she said, reading 
the judicial opinions and oral arguments. And so for that piece, it was, it was just a small sample of, of some meaningful quotes to go along with that piece. I made that piece after her passing. And of course, um, we're getting ready to come up September 18th on the one year anniversary of her passing. So when I made Super Diva, it was I think about a month and a half after she passed and it was it was somewhat in response to to her death. A tribute. Yes. And the colorful patterns and textures you apply. It fits this woman who was completely at one with her profession and her femininity. She took great pride in having all these different types of collars. She had lace and embroidered collars, and I could see why a diva would occur to you. <laughs> yes, I saw a picture. I think it was in an interview with her personal trainer because, you know... <laughs> I don't know when she became too sick to continue with the, the training, but it was well known that she had a physical trainer, you know, several times a week. And I saw this picture of her wearing a shirt that said super diva. And it just made me laugh. And then I read the article of here is this lady in her eighties and she's writing these brilliant opinions. And then she also is known for being able to do full planks on the floor. It's just, yes, <laughs> she just amazes me in every way. <laughs> and, you know, the whole idea of nicknaming her notorious, she embraced that fully. She did. Julie, you created an entire series on RBG, and you mentioned that the piece that will live now at the Met is one of your smaller works. Would you tell us about the larger works that are part of the RBG series? Yes. Uh, the first pieces that I made featuring her image were, it was December 2019, and I had the opportunity to exhibit some work in Miami at one of the satellite art fairs at the time that Art Basel is taking place. And I knew from having gone as a visitor and just an art lover that you really just have a few seconds to get someone's attention. And I felt a calling to make a few portraits. In my mind, there was no one else that I wanted to make my first portraits about than Justice Ginsburg for several reasons. I, I was a lawyer and had practiced law. So she was a role model for me as a lawyer and you know now an inspiration as an artist. Those pieces were about three and a half feet, four feet, which is a size that I have made a lot. Right now, at this moment, I am making a piece that is going to measure five feet by seven feet. It's going to be shown at Art Prize in Michigan in a few weeks. And so that's a portrait of her. That will be the largest piece <laughs> that I have ever made um, of the woven works that I make. Yeah, would you talk about the woven works? Yes, yeah, so I studied printmaking when I was at SCAD. 
printmaking is a is one of the fine arts. And um, when I graduated, I continued to primarily make screen prints. The Super Diva piece that's at the Met is a traditional screen print, which those are made in additions, so multiples. One of the things that I recognized and that can be a challenge with printmaking is a perception that works on paper are not as valuable as, let's say, a, a painting or a sculpture. Also, when you make works in multiples, you know, they are generally then at a lower price point. But I began to think about how can I use printmaking to actually make a unique work of art? And so I came up with the idea of printing. I print on Japanese paper. It's a kind of a thin, delicate paper. And I end up cutting that paper up into small strips and then weaving it all together to then make these woven pieces. So I'm using the techniques of, of screen printing to make more of a unique piece of work, if that makes sense. <laughs> it makes sense. It is a different process, though, from the piece that's on view now at the Met. Yes. If you are just tuning in, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes, speaking with Atlanta artist Julie Torres. Exhibiting work was difficult for many artists during the pandemic. How did you continue to showcase your work? Ultimately, the challenges of the pandemic as far as being able to share and show my work is in hindsight, you know, what I can see led to this piece finding its way to the Met. Because what happened uh, when I earlier mentioned the pieces that I made for the Miami Art Fair in December of 2019, they were very well received. I was able to show at another art fair in Palm Beach in January, there was a lot of interest in the work, you know, suddenly I was, I was really finding my, my stride as, a, as an emerging artist. And then, of course, March 2020, for all of us, everything changed drastically. So I had just started to find this commercial success with my work. And, you know, then the galleries were having to close, the art fairs were canceled. And I sat there and we had no idea how long it was going to go on. And I thought, well, I can fall back in a way on, on what I learned in art school. And maybe instead of trying to sell these, these larger pieces, I can make these additioned screen prints and I can show them on Instagram, like a lot of artists do. You know, and maybe that's the way that I can sort of bridge the gap in these uncertain times. That's what I did. I was making my work here in Atlanta and sharing the images on Instagram. Some of the galleries that I worked with, they were sharing images on Instagram, but primarily it was just through social media. With the Super Diva piece, a collector who lives in New York, she bought one of the Super Diva prints. And from your Instagram, yes, just from seeing it on Instagram and through family friends of um, 
someone close in the family who had worked at the Met for many years. Um, she shared that work with them. And that's how the dream for me came true because the gentleman, he works at, at the Met in the drawings and prints department. He shared Super Diva with the curators and they thought that it would be a good fit for their collection. So that's how it came to be. This is a fairy tale. Yes, <laughs> it really is. A fairy tale come true in the 21st century with technology. Your husband, Alexi Torres, is another very talented artist living in Atlanta. Yes. He was a guest on our show earlier this year. I know. <laughs> Do you share a studio? Yes, we do. Okay. And do you and your husband ever collaborate on artwork? We have not collaborated. We certainly are influenced at times by one another's work, and it is wonderful. How so? Well, um, in his paintings, for example, he he's known for the technique it looks like it looks like they're woven it looks like they're woven like basket weaving and when i was at scad i had begun experimenting a little bit with weaving paper but when i saw his work somehow it clicked and and you know i then developed the idea further for making the woven works that i make now and I think that it was in response to seeing his work. Oh, texture matters to you. The fabric of your lives together. Yes, that's true. You had a show that recently came to an end, the group exhibition at the Moan Contemporary, Love Always Wins. Did you have more than one piece in that show? Yes, I did. There was, of course, a piece of Justice Ginsburg. There was a piece of Dr. Maya Angelou, and there was a piece of Dolly Parton. All three of those were woven pieces. And then I made two screen prints of Dolly Parton. It was a beautiful show. I can see who your role models are. <laughs> yes, yes. Atlanta-based artist Julie Torres. More information about her screen print portrait of Ruth Bader Ginsburg and other artwork are on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. Torres's piece, Super Diva, will be on view at the Met in New York through January of 2022, and remain in the museum's permanent collection. In a moment, the Atlanta Pops meet the Atlanta Braves. You're tuned to WABE Atlanta. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. 
That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. If you've attended a Braves game on a Sunday, you've likely heard the glorious voice of Timothy Miller. The tenor performs God Bless America at every Sunday evening Braves home game. Mr. Miller is an accomplished opera and concert singer, and he'll perform this Sunday with the Atlanta Pops Orchestra at the Roswell Cultural Arts Center. Timothy Miller joins us now via Zoom with Kevin Leahy, the executive director of the Atlanta Pops and drummer with the orchestra. Welcome to City Lights. Thank you. Happy to be here. Thank you, Lois, for having us. Kevin, for those who've never heard the Atlanta Pops, how would you describe their repertoire? We are continuing the tradition that Albert Coleman began back in the mid-1940s, a long history, a long storied history of performing songs, uh, performing popular music, music that appeals to a broad audience, everything from jazz, gospel, light classical pieces, music that really appeals to all ages and people with all different types of uh, musical knowledge and background. What has it been like for the Atlanta pop since the pandemic hit? It's been tough, I'll, I'll be honest. 2015, we really started amping things up again, having a 70th anniversary gala concert, and we were doing 15 to 20 shows throughout the region, collaborating with a lot of great artists in the region including Timothy and a number of others that really represented the Atlanta sound. But last year, after two great shows in February, things pretty much uh, came to a halt. We were able to hold three concerts um, with a, a smaller condensed orchestra, masks, plexiglass shields. Uh, so there was some fulfillment in doing something, but it was definitely not like what we had been able to do in the past. And it's, it's really been tough on the uh, musicians individually, as well as the, the group as a whole. So it's uh, it's been tough. Sure. Did you do virtual performances? We did actually some of the first streaming performances this orchestra had ever done. Uh, we pride ourselves on being able to pivot and, and being a nimble orchestra that can sort of roll with the punches. Uh, this was a little bit tougher, but we were able to stream through volume.com and a, a few other sources that we were able to connect with to help us get our, our sound and our performances out to people that were uh, eager to see us, but couldn't. What can you tell us about the Sunday Pop series? Uh, this has been a real treat. The majority of shows that the Atlanta Pops do have been outside of the Metro Atlanta area for decades, uh, a very long time. We serve as a a nonprofit that serves communities outside of the Metro Atlanta region. But these uh, shows in Roswell have been a way for us to perform a little bit closer to home and to bring our diverse repertoire to an audience that perhaps may not even know that we've been around uh, this long. So this Sunday pop series in Roswell has been a treat to 
collaborate with Timothy and a few other uh, artists from the Atlanta region, as well as to showcase some programs that uh, have been solely just the orchestra, which we did back in July. Let's talk about this Sunday's performance at the Roswell Cultural Arts Center. Timothy, I saw that you'll perform your signature, God Bless America. Have you been able to do this at Braves games this season? I have. I've been uh, doing it at all the Sunday home games, Sunday and holiday home games for the Atlanta Braves this season. Interestingly enough, I was actually also able to do it during the pandemic, which was very strange, I must admit seeing all the cardboard cutouts in the <laughs> in the stadium it, it was very strange and so to be there by myself you know with basically only the grounds crew and the higher ups in the stands i'm glad to see fans back in the, in the stadium and trying to take all the necessary precautions and trying to get back to our uh, what it, what has become our new normal but no doubt you were wearing your signature tuxedo and Boudinier. Absolutely. Of course. Absolutely. Of course. <laughs> always the operatic gentleman. In addition to God Bless America, what other songs are you especially excited about singing this weekend? Well, it's certainly always a pleasure to be joining the Pops Orchestra because I get the chance to sing things that I wouldn't normally sing and uh, things like very popular, well-known hymns like How Great Thou Art. It will certainly be a, a signature performance on the program. We're also going to do from the third act of Verdi's Rigoletto. We're going to do uh, La Donna Immobile. That'll be a, a great treat for the audience. I am also very excited to perform one of Ellington's signature works, which is A-Train. Mm, one of the all-time best. And I have to tell you, whenever we are in New York and going uptown. Anyone who is seated in that subway car has to listen to me at least humming, if not singing a few bars of that Ellington tune, <laughs> as if they don't know they're on the A train already. I'm looking over the set list, and I see you will sing This Is The Moment, a Broadway song, and then you move into that Verdi aria, La Donna Mobile, one of the most famous in all of opera. Tim, what's it like to switch gears within a set like this, as opposed to the operas in which you often perform, where that's the voice you use? Sure, it is a bit of a challenge, and I tell you, it is more mental than anything. Fortunately, you know, here in the States, we are trained in our undergraduate years, particularly leading up to things like the junior and senior recitals, to have to perform a variety of repertoire on the same program, having to switch between languages and styles. That is something that is kind of woven into the fabric of young singers here in the States more often than not. And then, you know, later on, we get a chance to program these things that are a little bit more cohesive. But it is it is tricky, but it is certainly doable and, and something that I relish the challenge of. If you are just tuning in, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. 
My guests are Kevin Leahy, the drummer and executive director of the Atlanta Pops Orchestra, and tenor Timothy Miller, also known as the Atlanta Braves opera singer. So for listeners, concert goers who enjoy hearing great song, whatever the genre, can you explain, is it a different voice? Is there a different technique? You can just summarize for a general audience? Oh, sure, sure. It is a bit of a different voice, certainly for the more operatic, more classical in nature pieces. You, you certainly have to be able to, you know, deliver on the, on the high notes and the accuracy of the notes and rhythms. But ultimately, what you are after is to get the sentiment of each particular song across. So you have to be able to transport yourself from the third act of Rigoletto to New York. <laughs> and so you have to be able to portray to the audience uh, whatever that particular composer is, is trying to get across. And if you can see it, then the audience will see it. So this is where the actor comes in, and that's common to the singer, whether it's the operatic stage or Broadway. Absolutely. Kevin, you wear more than one hat with the Atlanta Pops. You are the drummer as well as the executive director. How does one role inform the other with what you do? I've been fortunate to have uh, been playing drums with this orchestra for about 15 years. In 2004, I joined the group on a three-week tour of Taiwan, which wow. Joe John Head was conducting at the time. And it was a treat to be in that unique position to play the drum set with an orchestra. It's not really a regular uh, position in a, a symphony orchestra, but where this orchestra blends both the strings, brass, percussion, uh, and woodwinds of a, a typical orchestra with a jazz pop rhythm section, uh, I knew I really, really wanted to hold on to this position. Uh, when Leonard Altieri retired in 2019 from managing the orchestra, I, I stepped in because I really had come to love what we offered. And I really came to love what this group had done in the past, and, and I saw a future for it. So a lot of the executive director work is done ahead of time, the, the busy work and the administrative work and, and getting things ready. But uh, when it's a day of show, that's when I can really transform back into a musician and sit in the back and provide the rhythm to, uh, to help, help make the show great. Do you have input into the repertoire? Uh, I do. That's something I work with uh, Maria Janis, a fantastic booking agent who's been the, the go-between between the presenters and the orchestra. And we uh, both, uh, over the years, getting familiar with the historic library of music that this uh, orchestra has performed, and also an interest in where popular music is going. It's, it's both the, the beauty and the challenges that popular music styles are continuously evolving. So we put our heads together and try to ensure that the programs have familiar music have uh, pieces that are things that people would be interested in hearing, but also a bit of something new to make sure that we're creating that excitement that occurs when we reach out to uh, someone like Timothy and say, hey, what if we try this? And Timothy responds, well, that might be cool. And then we run with it. And that uh, adds a bit of excitement to 
the shows and the programs, and it uh, makes it a, a really unique moment when the performance happens for the musicians and for the audience there that day. Last fall, the Atlanta Pop celebrated its 75th anniversary. You mentioned you've been with the company for over 15 years. How have you seen it grow and evolve? I think that it's in discovering the history. That's been the, the treat for me to see what Albert Coleman had done in the, the 1940s and 50s. And, and mind you, much of this material was in the archives of the AJC or down at the AFM Musicians Union Hall or Georgia State University, where articles and programs of what this orchestra had done. And to see that back then it was new and different and um, they were collaborating with the pop stars of, of those eras. Janie Miller, Miss Atlanta 1948, that was the, the big star at the shows back then. And that moved into Isaac Hayes in the 60s and James Brown in the 70s and Chet Atkins in the 80s and 90s. And, wow. and to see those programs or to see the, the advertisements for those shows was really inspiring. And it, it put the question on me, all right, what does that look like today? And so we've been able to look at new music. We've been able to collaborate with today's Atlanta uh, musicians. John Driscoll Hopkins from the Zach Brown Band has been working with us over the last few years. Joe Granson's been a, a tremendous collaborator with us. And also getting new arrangements made. Wes Van Verk, uh, he actually did a brand new arrangement of Take the A Train for this upcoming concert. Fantastic arranger. We have a new artist in residence out in Oxford, Alabama, where we perform quite a bit. Julio Barreto is his name, and he's coming up with some brand new pieces. And because he's just a few years out of Berkeley Music College, uh, he brings a new perspective on what popular music is, too. So being able to blend all that together, although it's a lot of work and a lot of challenges, it definitely brings up a sound that we're all very proud of. Speaking of college... Tim, I saw that you are teaching at your alma mater, Morehouse. Yes, I am. And uh, we are excited to be back on campus with, I think, a lot of other institutions of higher learning. And uh, so far, so good. Fingers crossed. I must admit that voice lessons over Zoom, that was not my favorite way of delivering instruction. And so I'm, I'm glad to have young people back in the building where I can put my hands and put my ears on them. And so it is certainly a treat for me to be back on campus uh, this semester over at Morehouse. Tenor Timothy Miller, also known as the Atlanta Braves opera singer, and drummer Kevin Leahy, the executive director of the Atlanta Pops Orchestra, They'll both perform at the Roswell Cultural Arts Center as part of this weekend's Sunday Pop Series. More information will be on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. Coming up, we'll revisit my interview with Atlanta-based author Roshni Chokshi. You're tuned to WABE Atlanta. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. 
The Atlanta-based author Roshni Chokshi has been described as one of the most brilliant voices now writing young adult literature. When she was on tour for her book, The Gilded Wolves, Chokshi stopped by WABE. She began our conversation by explaining how she likes to describe the book. My joking pitch for it, which seems to be working for a lot of people, is um, have you seen National Treasure? I have not. You haven't seen National I Treasure? I have not. I ought it's, to. It's oh, delightfully wait, awful. Nicholas Nicolas Cage. Cage. I, I know. did see You it. did see it, but perhaps you didn't <laughs> want to uh, because of Nicolas Cage, which is pretty much why I rewrote, rewrote it. <laughs> so it's National Treasure with more attractive people and a slightly <laughs> colonial agenda. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. I love it. Yeah, fun, magical artifacts, all the fun banter of an ensemble cast. Yeah, the ensemble <laughs> is pretty amazing. Thank the you. The main characters are Severin, mm-hmm. Leila, Enrique, Tristan, and Sophia. <laughs> they have a variety of professions from pastry chef slash cabaret entertainer (laughs) to botanist. How did you create these characters? Are they purely from your imagination or were they inspired by people you knew? A little bit of both. Um, One of the fun things is when you're crafting a team for a treasure hunt story, you have to think about what each member is going to be bringing to the table. Um, And and in the case of Layla, she was literally bringing cake to the table, that kind of thing. You know, you're stressed. You have to go steal something. You really need sugar. Um, But certain aspects of them are, are drawn a little bit from the time period. They're drawn from the people around me who I love. Um, for example, Layla is a dancer. She dances in a, a fictional cabaret place akin to the Moulin Rouge. And it was interesting because her background is actually in Bharatnatya, which is classical Indian dance, and was something I was trained in for almost 10 years. And yet during that colonial rule of India, that dance was banned mm. in a lot of places. And so to still practice your art form is its own form of rebellion. And that was really important for me to to think about when conceiving her. Yeah, quite a form of protest. What is their connection to one another? Oh, boy. Um, They love each other. This is a story of found family. They were so rewarding to write and so awful at the same time because they had so many feelings. And I think one of the most difficult things about writing a book that has an ensemble cast is that you have to be constantly aware of the secrets that the characters are keeping from each other. To say that this is intricate is understating it. Um, <laughs> yeah, they're, they're backstories. How long did this book take you to write? Um, I think overall it took about a year, but I think, for me at least, I like to write the first draft as fast as I can. And I think a large part of that is because I'm always trying to outrace the fear of what I'm doing, you know, to write so fast before your doubt catches up to you that that your idea is foolish or or that nobody's going to be obsessed with national treasure as much as you are or something like like that. And then from there it was a process of writing in layers, going back to each point uh. of view chapter, making sure that every single character interaction is consistent. 
that they remember the same secrets about each other, that you're honoring each of their emotional arcs and not letting them fall to the wayside just because you're in somebody else's head for a couple pages. Hmm. The Parisian setting of the Gilded Wolves is sophisticated, <laughs> elegant hotel with ballrooms, lavish meals, worldly entertainment. When you write, are you imagining your young adult readers encountering such things for the first time? Yes, absolutely. Um, there's something so magical about that 19th century era and the fact that its name, La Belle Epoque, means the beautiful years, you know? Um, but when I really dug into what that setting meant, there are a lot of ugly, imperialistic, colonialist roots that I could not ignore. Um, and so for me, when I was thinking about my own readers, and I think that for a lot of writers, there's a, there's a bit of narcissism to what we do. We write for ourselves. We write for younger versions of ourselves. Well, I think yeah. all artists draw from personal yeah. experience. Absolutely. And so for me to put people that have my own background, mixed race or or otherwise, or looking different from those around you, was really important for me um, to make sure that they weren't erased, that those perspectives weren't lost, even in an era that's perhaps remembered for something more beautiful. <laughs> the age group you target mainly fits into the categories known as young adult mm -hmm. and middle grade, which means middle school age, right? Not middle grade. <laughs> Roshni, when you set out to be an author, what made you want to write for these particular readers? I, I think again, I was I was writing for myself. I was writing the stories I wanted to see. I was always an avid reader. Um, my parents always were putting books in the hands of me and my siblings. We devoured fairy tales and so I felt like our brain was always soaked through with myth and folklore and the more of that that you read the more you see that people across various cultural spectrums are trying to tell the same story. Indeed you you have said um, well your mother's Filipino yes. and your father's of My Indian, dad's from Indian background yeah. so your household was this rich blend of cultures and already. with the best food. The best. <laughs> it was oh, so good. Dangerously good. Um, and yeah, I, I think that, you know, when you're growing up and you feel so different from people around you, that story of coming of age, of feeling the emotions that you do for the first time is really intoxicating and rich material to return to over and over. And I don't think that you have to be a certain age to appreciate these books. I think we're always going through our own coming-of-age moments at, at any phase in life. You know, I'm glad you mentioned that. Um, when I was reading your book, I thought about Harper Lee, uh, who later said how grateful she was that To Kill a Mockingbird was not marketed as a children's story, mm -hmm. even though... She saw it as a children's story. Yeah. She thought it would have ended up on the middle grade shelves of libraries, mm -hmm. and we would never know the phenomenon that it became. I think with young adult readers, um, m more recently, J.K. Rowling kind of broke the 
mold there with uh, Harry Potter appealing to people of all ages. Yeah. Is that where you weigh in on it? I I think a little bit. I I'm always deeply indebted to J.K. Rowling for for giving me a world to lose myself into mm-hmm. so completely. And I think that's what is so incredible about the Harry Potter universe, that anyone can can be anywhere in that world or know what kind of pet they're going to get or, or something else. But children's literature is, is it's an honor to be part of it. You've got authors like Rick Riordan who are constantly supporting marginalized voices, um, younger artists. He who, was helpful yeah. to you. Oh, yeah, Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm deeply indebted to Rick. He published um, my very first middle grade with Disney Hyperion, Arusha and the End of Time. And it's, you know, it's really changed the conversation about children's literature and how we're representing kids of all backgrounds, ethnicities, and reminding them that we see them. Mm-hmm. Um, because I think that's, that's honestly a large part of why I write. I want kids of my background to know that I see them and I think they are just as deserving of magic. In part one of the Gilded Wolves, um, you have a reference to the art of forging. Oh, yes. <laughs> and a biblical reference to the Tower of Babel. Central to this story, and I'm quoting here, God saw fit to disperse at least five fragments after the destruction of the Tower of Babel. And where these Babel fragments scattered... Civilizations sprouted, Egyptians and Africans near the Nile River, Hindus near the Indus River, Mesopotamians from the Tigris-Euphrates River, Mayans and Aztecs in Mesoamerica, and the Incas in the Central Andes. Now, the Gilded Wolves, as we said, is set in France in the late 19th century, an era when Western European imperialism had been flourishing for quite some time. Mm -hmm. Napoleon had already filled the Louvre with (laughs) his treasures, and the British Museum was stocked with... Nothing from Britain. (laughs) Right. Dare we say stolen objects. I once heard John Oliver say that he thought that... um, the entire British Museum should have yellow masking tape around it, <laughs> sort of like a crime scene. Oh, but yeah. um, what are you saying about colonialism in this book? I mean, I think ultimately these characters are chasing after artifacts of myth and they're questioning pieces of history. And I think what I'm trying to say and what I hope that my readers are getting is that history is itself a story. It's shaped by the tongues of conquerors. It's shaped by the ones who were able to survive. And so when we look at these objects, there's no easy answer about to return them or not. I I do think that at a certain point, sometimes an object no longer belongs to a country itself, but is representative of our story as humans and a story of humanity. I just want to point out the nuances Mm. of where things might be stolen to to push a little bit deeper when we go to these places and try to honor the nuances of those who came before us and the stories not told. If you are just joining us, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes here with the Atlanta-based national author, Roshni Chokshi. We've been talking about 
her new book, The Gilded Wolves. I'm going to quote here. The Order of Babel stole more than just objects. They stole history, swallowed cultures whole, smuggled evidence of illustrious antiquity onto large ships and spirited them into indifferent lands. In addition to the overall commentary on colonialism, there is specific reference in this story to the quest for independence in the Philippines. How did your own Filipino heritage influence this aspect of the book and perhaps inform Enrique's character. He's a very lovable character. <laughs> He's the best. En- <laughs> Enrique is that friend that's like always sending you articles, like the NPR articles, the Economist <laughs> articles, and then like follows up over drinks like, well, so what'd you think? And you're, you're sitting there like, I spent an hour taking BuzzFeed quizzes. So I haven't read it yet. Enrique, go sit down. Um, <laughs> I loved writing him. Um, and my mother has been on my, my Filipino mom has been on my case well, where's my story? You know, you're you're Filipino too, and I know, mother, if you're listening, I know, <laughs> and I adore you. But it's it's a very interesting treatment, I think, when you look at the stories that are left behind in the Philippines after almost 400 years of Spanish rule, versus how Britain treated mythology in India after all their rule. You know. India was still able to hold on to its mythology, its pantheons, its temples, its last names. And then when you go to the Philippines, so much of that has been erased. And I think that it was this dearth of information, this erasure of the things that came before you that really annoys um, Enrique and his character. And he feels as though he has every, every right for them to stand as equals to the people who conquered them. And he and I have a lot of similarities in the sense that we're both mixed race. He's Spanish and Filipino. I'm Filipino and Indian. And there's always this tension of, are you enough of something? Do you belong to one side more than the other? To whom do you owe your allegiances to? And it was just really rewarding to dig into that historical background and to think about what the lack of those stories meant to him. Hmm. So your mom must be just radiant with happiness than about <laughs> this book and Enrique and his quest. She's pretty happy. <laughs> okay. Rosni, in your role as a writer, do you also want to impart history lessons to young readers? I mentioned mm-hmm. um, a certain level of sophistication that is is at the core of this era in Paris. Do you expect that students, people Mm -hmm. reading this story, will have already studied that in history, might have heard of the the Ritz or the Saint Hotel? Or is this a history lesson on your part? I'm not sure. I think it depends on the reader. I think, if anything, I just want to pique their curiosity. But you are not talking down to anyone. No, my readers, children's books readers are brilliant. We don't give nearly as much credit to teenagers and kids as we should because they 
They come into a book with open hearts and open minds, and they let themselves fully sink into the perspectives of a character. They have such empathy. They really do. There are references to Chinese numerology, to (laughs) visual symbols such as the Eye of Horus. What drew you to these philosophies and (laughs) symbology? I was trying to get inside your head as I was reading and looking up all these definitions. Um, How do you introduce such complex subjects in an already intricate plot? It's difficult. (laughs) I, I honestly... I loved writing The Gilded Wolves. It was fun. And and that's what I wanted the book to be. All like these, you know, when you watch Indiana Jones or you watch Tomb Raider and you find something and she's wiped the grime off an orb and you're like, wow, what could this be and what does it mean? That's what I wanted to play with, the, all those really cool objects and to dig into their mythological significance and to turn them a little on their side. But it was it was a lot of research, and and um, sometimes in a very annoying way. Like, for example, when you're writing historical fiction, I, I just wanted to write the sentence, he put ice in a glass. And then I had to stop, and I was like, did they have ice in 1889 Paris? Mm-hmm. I lost three days of my life looking up the entire fascinating history of ice. And and, and I, I took it out of the book, but <laughs> those little things like that. <laughs> Most Europeans don't serve ice with their That's drinks. That's true. That's very American. <laughs> That's very Hist- American to me. History or not. <laughs> now, forging is a key concept in this book, mm-hmm. and that term relates to creation. Yes. In part two of the book, Enrique reflects on this idea, and I was hoping you would read from that portion. Um, page 61, Yes, last paragraph. I'd be happy to. Thank you. All right. Looking at the designs, Enrique felt a familiar stab of envy. He'd always wanted to forge. When he was little, he thought it was like magic, and now he knew there was no such thing, neither fairies in the forest nor maidens in the sea. But there was this art, this connection to the ancient world, to the myth of creation itself, and Enrique longed to be part of it. He'd hoped forging might make him like a hero, like the kind his grandmother told him about when he was younger. After all, if forging could reshape objects of the world, why couldn't it reshape the world itself? Why couldn't he be the artist, architect of change? He could still change the world, maybe not with something as dramatic or grand as forging, but in more intimate ways, writing, Speaking, human connection. Writing, speaking, human connection. With that final line by Enrique, I have the impression that what we are hearing is your voice and your belief. Um, would that be accurate? Absolutely. There's, it's, it's not my place to say how the world is supposed to run, but... I think it is my place and my duty to actively listen to the stories around me. Atlanta-based young adult author Roshni Chakshi. More information about the author and her book, The Gilded Wolves, will be on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. You've been listening to City Lights, 
our daily exploration of arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., we'll talk with the sensational young concert artists Conrad Tao and Stefan Jakiv ahead of their world premiere at the Atlanta Symphony Orchestra. If you missed part of today's show, you could catch up on our website, wabe.org slash City Lights. There you'll find our complete archive of interviews, so you can listen to City Lights on your own schedule. City Lights senior producer is Kim Drobes. Summer Evans is our producer, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes. I'd love it if you follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. You can also follow us on Facebook at W-A-B-E City Lights. Thanks for listening to WABE Atlanta's Choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Have you donated to WABE yet? I know you've heard us talking about why it's important, but it doesn't have to be this big decision. You can give at whatever amount fits your budget. It can be a spur-of-the-moment thing. You already get so much out of public radio, so just go for it. Visit wabe.org slash donate and become a member right now. And thank you.